great to have you here. If uh, you're joining us for the first time or one of the first times, welcome. No my hearty might. It's great to have you here. No matter what your story has been and the twists and turns it has taken you on, it doesn't matter because you made it here today. Not so much here because the place isn't that special, but you made it to a place where hopefully you can find a God who loves you for yourself. I love Easter. I love that we're going to celebrate a bunch of people getting baptized when I'm finished here. I love we're going to take some communion. I love we're going to eat some hot cross buns. And I'm sure I love that the kids are getting Easter eggs and I don't know why the adults don't get them. <laughs> Easter eggs are memories, eh? You bite into one of those Cadbury marshmallow ones and you're like, oh, I remember a lot. I remember eating too many of them, mainly. But I love Easter, but uh, I have to be honest, I really struggle with it as a pastor and as a teacher because the story's so big. And I feel like I feel like this weight on Easter of like, how do I take this huge story and give people something of it that doesn't skim across it with just cliches and one-liners you've heard a thousand times before. But how do we, how do we see it from a, a fresh angle in a way that might cause us to freshly worship or to freshly appreciate or for those in the room that don't know the story to give your life to Christ because it's such good news. And so I find myself feeling such pressure coming to Easter. I've spent 20 years studying the Word of God and I still learn new things about Easter every week. So how do you turn that into a little talk? You know, the ways that I've been taught the Easter story and certainly the conversations I've been a part of and the emphasis that has been put on it um, and certainly the way the church by and large talks about it uh, in our sort of era and probably in the last 100 or 200 years really emphasizes a certain perspective of the cross and um, it, would be, it would be like the theological term, the study of God term would be a substitution that, that we talk a lot about the elements of how the cross is a substitution moment. It's a great exchange moment where God takes our sin and he puts it on Jesus and he gives us his life and he puts that on us. He gives us his righteousness, his right standing, his rightness. He sort of takes our badness and gives us his goodness. And we emphasize, we've emphasized this a lot and we, we really see it primarily through this lens. The big words are forgiven. And we have all these romantic ideas of how Jesus would, like he did it just for me. And we have all of these like nice things that we say about it. But do you know that for the most of church history, this wasn't primarily the way the church understood what happened on the cross? As much as all of those things I've said are true and they're beautiful and as much as anyone else, I sit there and be like, yes, he, he's forgiven me and that brings tears to my eyes and gratitude to my heart and worship to my mouth because I've got lots of sins to be forgiven from. It's not the center of the way the church saw it. And so I want us to sort of like turn the, the cross and have a look at another side tonight. I want us to have another perspective of it and this is the way that, as I said, the church, for most of church history, when they first thought of the Easter story, this is what they first would have thought of. And the idea, rather than being summed up in the word substitution, 
It could be summed up in this Latin word, Christus Victor. Christus Victor. Christ is victorious. Christ is the victor. And I love, you could, I'm, I was sitting there listening to the songs and singing the songs and you can hear the tones of Christ is the victor coming through. And so what I wanna do is I wanna take us on a little journey to understand looking at the cross through this Christus Victor perspective. As much as substitution is awesome, we'll get to that. But Christus Victor. And to see this perspective, we have to see humanity and God and good and evil in this epic tale to understand Christus Victor. We have to imagine Lord of the Rings. We have to imagine Narnia. We have to imagine these epics. Narnia is a, a perfectly telling the story of Christus Victor. So if you've got the story, you've got it. But, but it's, it's sort of like we need to see all of human history. We need to see everything in the Scriptures as this great battle between good and evil between God and God's people and spiritual created beings and, and humanity that rages war against God and his people. It's, it's not so much good versus evil as much as it's love versus evil. Since the beginning of time, there have been heavenly beings rebelling against God. These are referred to in the scriptures as the sons of God and their leader is Satan and the minions are demons. They're the foot soldiers in this war. And Satan and his forces have waged war against God's people, God's purposes and God's creation right from the beginning. Just our Genesis 1 and 2, God creates Genesis 3, evil comes to rage war against that which God created good. And we learn that Satan has become the ruler of this world in this story. John 12, 31 says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That's Jesus speaking. Uh, Satan possesses all the kingdoms of this world in this epic tale. Luke 4 says, And the devil took him up, that is Jesus, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to them, To you I will give all the authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. So Satan is in control. And the entire world is under his power. In 1 John 5, 19, it says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 4 says, in their case, uh, God, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. You might be here and the evil one has blinded you up until this point, and I'm believing you will see tonight. All of creation groans under, this, under their evil ruler and longs for release, Romans tells us, for all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children it's us and glorious freedom from death and decay. You got to think Narnia. You got to think the whole world is frozen. It was supposed to be a tropical oasis, but it's come under the power of the white witch. Or in this place, Satan. And it was promised by God 
that Satan would one day be destroyed. In Genesis 3.15, God said to the serpent, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. We are told that our real struggles in this world are not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities and the places unseen. Ephesians 6 says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And evil comes to destroy us time and time again, but God comes to give life. Jesus said, oh, in 1 John 3, 8, it says, but when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning, but the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus said this in John 10, 10, in John 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. And that's why when Jesus comes to earth, man, it's like two kingdoms colliding. It's the kingdom of evil rising up against the promise of the godly kingdom moving into power. It's why even from Jesus' birth narrative, we see the evil forces at work killing all the babies in the area is from hoping to kill him, to take out the king before he can even get on his journey. A huge part of Jesus' ministry, and that's why we see it in the themes through the scriptures, was freeing people from demonic oppression, from the enemy's grip, and that work still exists today. Jesus comes, kingdoms rage war. One kingdom is being invaded and plundered by another as Jesus walks about Israel. Jesus' ministry is a war between kingdoms. He doesn't just announce the kingdom. He shows it advancing forcefully. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Jesus, we call him Lord, and the scriptures call him Lord, because on the cross, he defeats all God's enemies. He becomes the true prince, the rightful heir, the one who should rule because he's the one who establishes the kingdom. This has got to be one of the greatest passages in all of the scripture, Colossians 1 verse 13. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God and gosh, doesn't God look good? He existed before anything was created and he's supreme over all of creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. They were made to serve him, but they rebelled against him. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all of creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, 
which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything, for God in all of his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. Not just us, everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you. This includes me, who were once far away from God. You were his enemies. Maybe you didn't even realize it. Separated, by, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. And surely I don't need to convince you of those. Yet now he has reconciled you. He has brought you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are the holy, uh, and you are the holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. So I want to say that salvation is not primarily or firstly about forgiveness of sins. It's about freedom from the devil's power. It's about freedom from the evil kingdom and the opportunity to be in a new type of community, in a new type of kingdom, under a new type of king, with a new type of allegiance. This allows for the forgiveness of sins as you switch allegiance for sure, but it's not primarily about forgiveness. It's about kingdoms. 2 Timothy 2.26 said, then, you'll come to the, then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Galatians 1.4 says, Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from the evil world in which we live. As personal as the cross is, it's deeply personal, you had the personal walkthrough. You got to write something personally down on the card. You got to personally pin it to the cross. You got to personally pick up a stone. God personally loves you. He knows, the, you know, he knows everything about you. You don't escape his gaze. As much as everything about God is deeply personal, we don't want to reduce what happened on Good Friday to something that's just about me. We don't want to put ourselves in the center of God's story. We don't want to reduce this epic of battles of kingdoms down to something that just requires a prayer to access because it's so much deeper than that. Prayer might be the beginning place, talking to God, but it's not the whole story. Salvation is the whole world the whole cosmos being liberated from evil powers. Yes, including me and my rebellion and including you and your rebellion. Yes, it includes my sin. Yes, it includes my guilt, but I'm being liberated because the whole world is being liberated. I'm being wrapped up in this bigger story. Who are the freed inhabitants of this new kingdom? the saved, they're those that no longer want to be a part of the evil kingdom and its agenda, 
but want to live in this new kingdom, in freedom, in love, and in relationship with God. The evil kingdom has no claim on them anymore because at the cross and in the resurrection, the evil kingdom has been utterly decimated. When we look at all of the life of Jesus through the cross, looking backwards through this epic of an Easter tale, we can see it's one big story of love overcoming evil. The places where evil held back women, Jesus' love brought them forward. The places where evil despised the young, Jesus loved and welcomed them. The places where evil used ethnicity to control access to God, Jesus' love draws near to the Samaritan. The place where religious traditions kept the sick and the sinful out of God's presence, Jesus' love and mercy healed and gave access. The places where religious systems were content with the 99, Jesus went after the one in love. His teaching, his way of life, his acts of love, his power and his mercy overcame evil at every turn. Evil thought that death would have the final word, but love once again showed it was stronger than evil. At Jesus' death, that Leone so beautifully read out, a bunch of amazing stuff occurs that testify to this cosmic victory, this Christus victor. You know, in the garden the night before he would be crucified, he chose obedience to his father where Adam and Eve chose disobedience in the garden. Jesus had a crown of thorns forced upon his head and thorns were the icon of punishment to do with man's disobedience. Pilate made a sign to hang over his head. It was a sign of mocking, but it was truer than he ever could have known. This is the king of the Jews. Jesus fulfills a bunch more of Old Testament prophecies confirming he's the one God would send he announces paradise to the sinner next to him. He declares it is finished, paid in full, not a statement of giving up, but a statement of victory. And the earth knew its liberation was afoot, so it went dark. The earth shook and the rocks broke open. They didn't sing out on Palm Sunday, but now was their chance as the earth responded to the beginnings of its liberation. And the curtain tore, this curtain in the temple tore from top to bottom. The curtain was the separator between God's presence and its fullness and just the places of worship on the outside. And only one person could ever enter that place once a year and they could only do it once sprinkled with the blood of a lamb. In this presence, God responds by making available not in a place or not to just one person once a year, but to the whole earth through one person. The tombs open up. Sin always resulted in death. Sin kills every day of the week. It never brings life. But at the cross, Jesus broke the evil power system by being one without sin, who chose to die and caused the liberation of all under the system.
And to top it all off, the guys responsible for nailing him to the cross pondered all that happened as they looked up at this king of the Jews. And even they declared, surely he was the son of God. The cosmic battle is won. Right when evil thought had to crush the son, the perfect son crushed evil and disarmed the evil powers from the inside out. It was the ultimate Trojan horse. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for us, yes. But ransom doesn't necessarily mean that he paid for my sins. He paid for my release is what ransom means. How amazing is Easter. You know what I love about looking at the cross through the lens of Christus Victor as it takes me out of the center and it puts Jesus back in the middle of the story. Sometimes when we only look at it through the lens of substitution, we reduce the cross to something you just need to accept or say a prayer about to receive the substitution. But salvation and discipleship were never supposed to be two separate things. They're one and the same. In Christus Victor, we can see salvation and discipleship can never be divorced because liberation isn't about a decision. It's about a kingdom you're invited into. And you need to know, you need to know today that you're invited to participate in fullness in the liberation and victory of Jesus. How does the Bible say we should participate in the liberation of evil to love? So simple. Believe. It sounds too good to be true, but believe is a big word. Believe invokes not just an agreement in our mind, but it invokes a trust in our heart. It invokes an allegiance with our mouth and a direction of our lives. But we begin by believing. That is to have faith, to be in agreement to trust that the way God says the world is, is the way it is. And our faith is supposed to look like something. The Bible says faith without works is dead. Show me your faith by your works. And there are two works we are all supposed to begin with. The first is repentance. That is to begin changing the way we think. And the second is to be baptized. And that is to participate in the victory through the waters. Romans 6 verse 3 says, Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we were joined with him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also uh, live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, that's what these baptism waters are about. We will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we now we know we will also live with him. 
We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and He will never die again. Death no longer has any power over Him. When He died, He died once to break the power of sin. But now that He lives, He lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. I'm stoked that today we get to celebrate with people doing just that. And I wanna put it out there. Maybe you didn't come here thinking you were gonna get dunked in some water, take a little swim. But tonight you've heard that Jesus loves you and that He's won a great victory for you and that He's inviting you from the kingdom you are in, one of bondage, one of sin, one of darkness, one of despair, and one that will ultimately lead to death. And you realize you don't want that. You want life. You want joy. You want peace. You want liberation. You want hope. And all of those things are in Christ, our victor. And I wanna let you know and we have everything here that you need to choose to believe and to let that faith look like something tonight and repent and be baptized. But for everybody else that maybe has already done that, Romans 10 verse 19 is where we'll land this plane. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Some context here. The writer for 10 chapters has been saying how amazing what Jesus did over Easter is. 10 chapters. Since we have a confidence to enter the holy places, the, the curtain's been torn by the blood of Jesus. The priest entered through the blood of a lamb and we enter through the blood of the lamb by the new and living way that He opened, us, opened up for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh, which was the real curtain that got torn. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that is Jesus interceding for us, there's three things the Scripture says we should do in response. It says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience, and with our bodies washed with that pure water. The first way we should respond to the Easter story is we should respond in faith. We shall respond by giving God our full hearts, by drawing near to Him with all that we have, because we know that there's nothing in here, no darkness, no sin, no shame, no guilt, that He doesn't know about and that He didn't die for. So we can draw near to Him with a full heart, with an open heart, because He's sprinkled it clean and He's washed it clean. The second response, if faith is a heart response, the second response it says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast our hope. If the first response to the Easter story is one of heart, of faith, 
The second response is one of hope and head. It's one of the mouth that we hold fast in our hope. Hope is what is to come. And hope is the fuel of faith. Faith is what a life that's lived in hope looks like. And how do we know who hopes? Well, hopes always speak out. Hopes always say, oh, this is a tough time, but I'm looking forward to when Jesus comes back. Hope might have a rubbish week, but it walks into an environment like this and it lifts its hands and go, yeah, Jesus. Hope is a statement of allegiance. And from our mouths, from our minds, our minds control our mouths, from our mouths, we can be hopeful people. And the last response he says, he says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more you see the day drawing near. How do you respond to the Easter story? Faith, hope, and love. Of course you would respond that way because 1 Corinthians 13 tells us these three things are eternal. These three things last forever. And when you give your life to these things, you're giving your life to something that will go on and on and on. You're giving yourself to something productive, something fruitful, something enduring, something everlasting. So we give our hearts to faith, we draw near with all of us because we know we're sprinkled clean. We hold on to hope by letting hope constantly come out of our mouths. And we stir one another up to love, to practice love, to do good things just for the sake of doing them because that is the type of kingdom that Christ reigns over. Draw near in faith, love, and hope. Draw near with your heart, mouth, and hands. Can we close our eyes? In a moment, we're gonna take communion. And then we're gonna celebrate with people through baptisms. But we need a holy moment. A moment that would happen in that moment. We need a holy moment. One where each person ponders the fact that Jesus really did come and He really did live. He really did show us who our Heavenly Father was. He lived such a loving, pure life, yet they killed him for it. But they didn't kill him. It was his plan all along to die. Nobody takes his life from him. He gives it willingly and freely. He has his back whipped, his status mocked, his hands pierced and his side split open. Because that 
is what it took to claim back all that was rightfully his. Sin might have entered the world through disobedience, but love conquered sin through obedience. He is the victor. And he's inviting us to leave the kingdom of darkness and live in the kingdom of love and light and freedom. And if you have not received or responded to that invitation yet, what better time than now? What better time than on Easter weekend 2022? That for all of your days, you can look back and go, that is the day I gave God my whole heart. I drew near to Him in faith and I confessed Him with my mouth and I left this place stirred up to love. And I wanna let you know, you don't need me to lead you in a prayer. God wants your words. God wants your heart. That you can just say to Him, God, I want you. Jesus, I want you. You can invite Him into your life and you can change allegiance right now. And in that moment, you begin a new life and a new kingdom filled with hope, filled with life, filled with a relationship with Him. So now's your moment. Now's your moment to invite Him. He's drawing near to you. He's saying, I love you. He's saying, you're forgiven. He's saying, everything's gonna be different now. Receive his peace. Receive his joy. Receive his love.